0: Learn more about Messianic Judaism and find helpful resources. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of his word. So from your perspective, you would say, or most of you, I bet Clarine could see me, but you would say that Rabbi David is doing what? Hiding my face. Why would I hide my face? Hmm. Well, one of the reasons is that the Genesis narrative has a lot of these. Have you ever noticed that? You're reading a lot of the hiding of the face, the veiling of the appearance, and uh, even throughout the Bible, even God sometimes hides his face. Uh, Perhaps we've been in seasons where we sense that we're far from God's presence, where God has maybe veiled his face so, what can we learn from the narratives in in genesis and and the rest of the Bible that that talks about this idea? Well, the first mention of hiding that I could find is uh, Adam and Eve. You remember that? Not, you know, personally, although some of you are maybe old enough to remember <laughs> just kidding, right? But they hid from God after disobeying and eating the fruit. Um, before, what were they, face to face? With God. In Hebrew, we say, does anyone know how to say that? Hey, Torah point Panim el Panim. Can you say that? Can you look at someone else's face? You know, turn your face to their face and say, we are Panim el Panim. All right, I'll be your partner, Clarine, because there's no one sitting next to you. Okay, so that's what that means. So the, before they ate the fruit, that's what they were. They were face-to-face with each other and really face-to-face with God. They were naked and vulnerable, but they were face-to-face. And then sin and death entered into the world and shame, right? And brokenness entered the world. So that, that's why they hid. So there was a season where they were hiding from God. The first mention of a veiled face, actually, where it specifically says someone veiled their face or covered their face, is with Rebekah, the wife of Isaac. So specifically for context, Abraham's servant has just gone and prayed to God for a specific wife for Isaac, who is Abraham's son. And God provides and leads the servant exactly to Rebecca. It's kind of a miraculous story. He says, you know, the woman that I'm looking for would have these character traits and these these sorts of things and would give water to the camels. And that's exactly what Rebecca did, did because God was ordaining this marriage. And so Rebecca agrees to come back and marry Isaac. And then she sees Isaac, Afar off in the field. And uh, this is what happens. Then she said to the servant, who is that man there who was walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, he is my master. Uh, that is Isaac. So she took the veil and covered herself. Then the servant recounted to Isaac all the things he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after the loss of his mother. That's from Genesis 24. So Rebekah veils herself out of modesty, and then she reveals herself, of course, when they're married and there's intimacy and love. The veiling is one of the reasons that there's a veil and a removal of the veil at a Jewish wedding. How many of you have, have seen this? This uh, It's a really cool thing. This is often the first time a groom uh, sees his bride when he unveils her and then they sign the, the ketubah, that's right, or a marriage contract. The veiling of modesty then leads to what? The revealing of intimacy. Uh, The other veilings of the face or mistaken identities are often done with some deception, but also there's an element of testing or proving of character. So Jacob, remember him? He conceals his identity from Isaac, his father, uh, and he nabs the blessing from Esau, the firstborn. Then Jacob meets his mash in Laban, who pulls the old switcheroo on Jacob. He works for Laban for seven years and only to be given the wrong sister in marriage. Jacob doesn't even realize the deception until the morning when he ends up with Leah instead of Rachel. This might be, you know, now that I think about it, the other reason for the removal of the veil in a Jewish wedding. You know, the groom has just got to make sure we got the right one. You know, there's no switcheroos. That's important, right? Okay. But this is what's happening between Jacob and Laban is iron sharpening iron, right? They're both deceivers and they're using concealed identities to try to get ahead, but they end up humbling each other. Jacob the swindler has met his match and that's it's it actually ends up being good for his character because he has to overcome that and he sees his flaw in in the other person and and it, it kind of God uses that to work it out. Jacob and Laban's deceptions are not exactly a concealing of the face literally in the Hebrew text, but it's a similar idea. You know, I, I thought I would connect that because we see these mistaken identities and 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 concealing the face kind of go together, I think. But then the next time we come to the exact words again of veiling the face are in this week's Parsha. Mostly the Torah portion is in this week is about Joseph, but there's kind of a side story here about Tamar and her father-in-law Judah. Now, this is a complex story, and it's kind of PG-13, but uh, we can look at some of the key points, I think, and that, that will help us connect the dots. So essentially, Judah had three sons. He, um, had a, uh, he got a wife named Tamar for his first son, but the Torah says that the first son was evil in the eyes of God, so God put him to death. Then the second son denied uh giving children to Tamar, so God also put him to death. Uh then according to the custom, you know, you would you would marry the the brother. It was called a Leverite marriage in the um in the in the Torah. That's what it refers to. But Judah doesn't give his third son to Tamar, probably out of fear. Um, but he also relegates her to a life of widowhood. He's she's, she can't marry anyone and she can't have children, and she has to stay a widow for the rest of her life. Uh, And this is where the veiling of the face comes in. So Tamar actually covers her face to bring about children and justice to the situation. It's kind of interesting. Um, It's unusual, but this is what happens. Tamar is able to produce children uh, through Judah, her father-in-law, by veiling her face, and then later revealing her face. And she has twins. She has twins, one of whom is later in the line of King David, right? Remember, the line of the Messiah goes from Judah to David and then to Messiah Yeshua, as we see in Matthew chapter one. It actually mentions Tamar by name. Interestingly, there are some connections to Tamar and the story of Rebecca that we mentioned earlier, where it says in the Hebrew specifically, they both veiled their faces I found a connection from, this is from Midrash Tanhuma, published by Rabbi Solomon Buber in 1885. This is what he says, he makes this interesting connection. What is written above on the matter? And it was told to Tamar saying, here is your father-in-law coming. So she put her widow's clothes off from her and covered herself with a veil. Then having wrapped herself, she sat down at the entrance to Anaim. Two women covered themselves with a veil and bore twins. These are Rebecca and Tamar. Of Rebecca it is written, so she took the veil and covered herself. Then she bore twins, Esau and Jacob, as stated in Genesis 25. Behold, there were twins in her womb. As for Tamar, she covered herself with a veil and according to Genesis 38, bore twins, Perez and Zerah. What's going on here? Well, the veiling and revealing produces fruit. Produces fruit of of the womb, a double portion. In, in both of these cases. Perhaps that means that women who have twins are especially righteous. I don't know. Could be. But in any case, Rebecca was showing modesty, and she was showing good boundaries, later revealing her face in the context of marriage. And Tamar was, even though it's a complex story, she was actually showing godly values, and she was advocating for herself that she would be able to bear children and not remain a widow, revealing her face later to actually prove her case. In fact, Judah ends the story by saying she, Tamar, is more righteous than I am. In both cases of Rebecca and Tamar, boundaries are applied. Tamar will not be oppressed and resigned to widowhood for the rest of her days because she advocates for herself. but she applies that that boundary. she conceals her face for a time. Rebecca applied the boundary, and concealed her face by waiting and then waited to reveal her face at the right time when she's married to her husband. The hiding of one's face in a lot of these stories or the concealing of their identity can bring about a change of heart, change of heart in the other person or an opportunity for a change of heart. This is what happens to Judah who realizes in the end that he was wrong. It also happens to Judah again the same the same thing and the rest of his brothers when they meet Joseph remember they met they met Joseph who is now an official you know at the right hand of the of the Pharaoh the king of Egypt and they meet him but what happens they don't recognize him they see his face they don't recognize his face right they think they're speaking to an Egyptian leader and he uh, Joseph goes along with this he uses an interpreter even though he he understands, them, right? Speaking Hebrew, but uh, he pretends not to. So, and then he tests his brothers. He proves them to see if they have changed their hearts. Because last he saw them, they threw him in a pit and then they sold him to slavery. And so he wants to see if they've changed, if they've repented. And who is it that offers to take Benjamin's place, giving his very life for his brother? which of the brothers is it? It's our old friend, Judah. It's our old friend, Judah, right? Because this is his story as well. He's learning only after Judah's realization, right? That he's changed and that he shouldn't treat his brothers that way. And he gives his his life for Benjamin. Then Joseph can't contain himself. And he says, you you know, like this, I'm your brother, (laughs) right? He reveals his face. Right? It's just like that. This story has many parallels to Yeshua um, because the Lord Yeshua also uh, did not reveal his face at times, um, especially right after the resurrection. Have you read some of those stories and and they didn't recognize him right away? It's interesting, right? But he's doing the same thing that Joseph did, the same thing that Tamar did, the same thing that Rebecca did, right? There's a pattern here. So uh, this is from uh, John. Uh, chapter 21. At dawn, uh, Yeshua stood on the beach, but the disciples didn't know that it was Yeshua. They didn't see his face, they didn't recognize him. So Yeshua said to them, boys, you don't happen to have any fish, do you? No, they answered him. He said to them, throw the net off the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they threw the net and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Didn't this happen earlier in the gospels? Right. And the, so the, the wheels start to click. Right. And uh, the, the hamster in the wheel is, starts to turn. Uh, Therefore, the disciple whom Yeshua loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied his outer garment around himself, for he was stripped down for work and threw himself into the sea, you know, toward toward Yeshua. It kind of reminds me, I, I imagine this scene kind of like uh, in Forrest Gump. When Forrest, he sees, he's like, Lieutenant Dan! And he just like jumps in, you know, because he's joining him on the fishing boat. Anyway, <laughs> that's kind of a side note, but that's how I imagine this scene. He's so happy to see Yeshua and to recognize him finally, right? And he, and it's so funny that he doesn't recognize him right away. Also, there are some disciples traveling on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection. Uh, they don't recognize Yeshua in uh, Luke 24, even though he's he's right next to them. And they're talking to each other about all the things that are happening. And Yeshua starts walking with them and three of them. And uh, they were prevented from recognizing him for some reason. So he asked them, well, what are you guys talking about? And they they look all sad and they're like, you're the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's been going on, right? Our, our leader, our rabbi has died and we don't know what's happened to him. And he's like, huh, interesting. So, uh, like, what kind of things have been happening, right? And uh, they said to him, the things about Yeshua from Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful indeed, and word before God and all the people. How the ruling Kohanim, the priests, and our leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death and they executed him. We were hoping that he was the one about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. And, you know, what's supposed to happen on the third day? He's supposed to be resurrected. But also some women among among us amazed us early in the morning. They were at the tomb when they didn't find his body. They came saying they had seen also seen a vision of angels who said he's alive. Some of those went with us, went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, but they did not see him. Huh? See the weird the gears are turning a little bit, (laughs) but it takes it takes us a little bit of time sometimes. Right. Yeshua said to them, oh, foolish ones. So slow of heart to put your trust in all that the prophets spoke. Was it not necessary for Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things written about himself in the scriptures. They approached the village where they were going and he acted as though he were going on farther on. But they urged him saying, stay with us for it is nearly evening and the day is already gone. So he went in to stay with them. And it happened that when he was reclining at the table with them, he took the matzah, offered a baruchah, a blessing, breaking it, gave it to them. And then, only then, were their eyes opened. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. And they recognized him. And then he disappeared from them. They said to one another, didn't our hearts burn within us while he was speaking with us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? such a beautiful story right yeshua conceals his identity and prevents them from recognizing his face in order to allow them to enter into trust to process he lets them process that oh he was supposed to be raised from the dead right and then we have some evidence for that but we don't know and they're all notice they're all sad right because they they don't quite get it yet so he gives them time gives them time to process and to enter into trust, those times of concealment are are an opportunity to enter into more trust. Right when Nathan was looking for me, he trusted that I was still back here, and I had a treat for him. Right, that I hadn't. There wasn't like a trap door, and I you know was going to come out the other side like something like that. No tricks. Right. So that's that. It gives an opportunity to build trust in the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. God himself, as I mentioned at the top, hides and reveals his face. This is a a cool example from Psalm 80. Adonai tsevaot, the Lord of angel armies. How long will you be angry with the prayer of your people? You have fed them the the bread of tears and made them drink a measure of tears. You make us a contention to our neighbors and our enemies mock as they please. Adonai elohe tsevaot, restore us and make your face shine. And we will all be saved, right? There's a sense of suffering and they're crying out, Lord, shine your face upon us. Shine your face upon us. It seems like God hides his face when we feel far from him or when our tears are many, or when we long for his face to shine upon us again, to bring us out of our troubles, to save us, right? But that's what he loves to do. He loves to save us. He loves to rescue us, This hiding and revealing of God's face, um, or we could say God's presence, right? Um, Because your face is your presence, um, is also in Psalm 30. I thought this was interesting. For his anger lasts for only a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Did you catch that? Right? The hiding of the face is for a moment, but the favor, the shining of the face is for a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but joy comes in the morning. When I felt secure, I said, I will never be shaken. Adonai, in your favor, you made my mountain stand strong. When you hid your face, I was terrified. Right? And then it goes on to describe the salvation of God. Remember the, the demonstration at the beginning, right? It seemed as if I was hiding my face. But also, we see how I didn't really move from where I was. And, uh, you know, um, it was it was blocked by, by the Bema and i i didn't move but when nathan came around he moved where he was then we could be face to face so sometimes when god hides his face it seems like well he's hiding his face but really it's because we're in the wrong place because we need to adjust to come around to 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 be with him we need to seek his face sometimes right but it's it's complicated it's not always the same thing right God is God is complex and we can't assume, oh, this is because of my sin that that this happens. No, it's it's complex. So we don't beat ourselves up, but we try to figure it out. We try to pray to the Lord and we try to seek his face, right? We try to to make, we use that time to make adjustments if we need to, just like Judah made adjustments to his heart. Um in a similar way. Uh, God hides His face, but this is more sometimes because we have left His presence than God leaving. Sometimes God's hidden face, feeling far from His presence, is a result of Israel turning away. But we can't always say that. Sometimes God chooses to hide His face for other reasons that aren't necessarily our fault, right? Um, to bring about there's a there's a concealing and a revealing, and that's just that's just the process. Um, there's a building up of trust. As when the disciples had to trust in the resurrection that Yeshua really was raised from the dead. Because that's a hard thing to to understand, to swallow. And he was trying to get them to like put their trust in him, right? He was bringing them in. So he didn't reveal himself right away. Uh, There's a building up of character. There's a purification of our hearts as we seek his presence. Even sometimes in the midst of our tears. The ultimate goal is what? to be panim el panim, to be face-to-face, right? It's not this, right? That's no good. You can't see me, right? But we want to be face-to-face with each other, panim el panim, and we want to be face-to-face with Hashem, with God, Um, to be vulnerable, right? To have intimacy. But sometimes this takes process. Even married couples, right, that are intimate with each other, they, they come apart for a time to pray, and then they come back together again. There are rhythms of separateness and intimacy built into marriage in the, in the book of Leviticus, right? And there are even, you know, any relationship, not just marriage, but a friendship, right? You notice that some of our relationships, some of our friendships, there's a time of more separation. Maybe one or both of us needs to to make a growth to grow or, or to change. Right. And then we can come back together. So it's just, you know, sometimes there's an application of boundaries if, if things aren't working out and then you come back together later, healthier. And uh, that's our relationship with God is like that. Sometimes we need to, we need to um, be purified in our hearts with others. We have to have seasons of boundaries where we're vulnerable over time. After trust is built up, sometimes you have to rebuild trust with another person. And that takes time. Concealing and revealing our face to each other at the right time. I have to do the same thing, right? Even from right here, right? If I share too much from the Bema about my personal life, that's not appropriate, right? That's too much of my face. <laughs> but if I share too little about myself, then it makes me seem distant, right? Or like I don't have flaws like a real person, like I'm some you know idealized rabbi or something like that. So there's a... There's a balance to it. These are the dynamics we have when we relate to each other. Sometimes we have to apply boundaries and sometimes we have to show our face and it takes discernment to know. With God, some seasons we're on the mountaintop. How many of you had a mountaintop experience where you feel like you're face to face and your face is shining because it's his face, right? And those are great. And then other seasons where you feel more distant, where you're in the desert, you're in the valley, right? Have you experienced that as well? Yeah, this is this is how God ordains it. God ordains that. It's not every season is the same. He invites us to trust him in the desert times, to seek his face, to look for his presence, to find his saving hand, to press into trusting and to press into faith. Right? Our 6-month-old son, he doesn't like it when we wipe his face. He goes like this. He's he's resistant. He'll cry and protest i'm not going to make the sound he makes because i don't want to um, blow your eardrums or anything but he doesn't like it and we we have to clear his nose sometimes so that he can breathe these are good things for him right you would think he would be appreciative he is not he is not appreciative he turns his face away ah, wiggles around right tries to get out of it but guess what it's for his own good so that he can breathe better so that he can be clean so that he and, and, and Sonia and myself, we can again be Panim El panim. We can be face to face again. I'd like to close us, uh, by having us all read, uh, two lines of scripture. One is from the Beatitudes, which is, uh, we read earlier. This is actually this week's New Covenant portion. I think it relates. And, uh, the other is from, uh, First Corinthians 13. So let's read this together. The first one. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. See how God purifies our hearts over time, right? So that we can see him. We can be face to face. In the difficult times, we're wriggling around, right? We're resisting. That is the time to surrender. That is the time to surrender to God and allow him to purify our hearts so we can see him face to face. Let's read this last one. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, and then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. Let's pray. Avinu, our Father, we thank you that you have given us these beautiful stories in your in your word, Lord, um, of, of folks that veiled their face and revealed their face. And uh, we know that sometimes you do the same. Um, and uh, we just ask that you help us to seek your face always, to, um, to trust you in the mountaintop times and to trust you in the desert times, and to allow those things to draw us closer to you. And that we would be like Nathan did, and we would come around the side, right? And we would make adjustments, um, that we would um, pursue you, Lord, and uh, and not be complacent. And we thank you, Lord, for this season of Hanukkah that is upon us. We pray that um, we would seek your face and see your light, see the light of your face in those candles, see um, see your miracles, see the things that you do for us every day, um, and that we would um, bless you and that we would um, thank you and adore you and worship you, Lord, in this season. And in Yeshua's name we pray. Amen.